Okay, welcome back. It's been four weeks. Welcome back to the Think Jewish class. And the, the title of today's, today's lecture is called The War of the Gateways. Subtitle, Reaching Higher Vibrations. Okay? What we started doing lately is instead of jumping straight into the higher dimensions of the class, the teaching of Hasidus, it's important to first understand the plain and simple physical dimension of the law. You know, the bottom line is Judaism happens in our actions. So I want to just quickly, just briefly go over some of the laws that we should know. What is this commandment? To place judges and officers at the gateways of all your cities. Okay, at all, the at all your gateways. So, the Jewish people are commanded that each city have a courthouse established within it. So, we need to understand, what's the definition of a city? So, the definition of a city, Maimonides tells us. He actually makes a list of what needs to exist minimum within the community to have it legally defined according to Jewish law, as a city. For example, one of the things he lists there is a doctor. Besides that, he lists another 119 different types of individuals that must exist within the community in order to call it a city. So now you know what the definition of a city is. Okay? Now, what is the definition of a courthouse? The judges. So just briefly give you just a brief opening of the attractic Sanhedrin in the Babylonian Talmud. There's actually an entire attractic book on what the definition of the Sanhedrin is, the different judges. So number one, you have the courthouse of three judges. Number two, you have the courthouse of 23 judges. Number three, you have the courthouse of 71 judges. Just to understand, the courthouse of three judges cannot preside over any cases of capital punishment. Only the courthouse of 71 can preside over national issues. Okay? So just that you understand the different levels of the different courthouses. Now, Maimonides explains to us what the process is. A person has a question, a person has a dispute, a din Torah. So they go to their local courthouse. If the courthouse of three cannot clearly decide what is the true Torah verdict on this issue, they go to the local courthouse of 23. If the local courthouse of 23 find this to be a very unique, unprecedented case, they too don't know what would be the Torah law. What is the Torah law on this situation? And what is what do they do then? All of them together, the defendant, all, all the people involved, and the courthouse of three, and the local courthouse of 23 need to travel to Jerusalem where in the Holy Temple, there was the Supreme Court of 23. Now, what happens? We are taught 
that the courthouse of 23 cannot stop debating the issue until they have a final verdict. Thus, every single issue that ever took place, every new question, every new scenario that happened, we ended up with one and only one opinion on the matter, which was accepted, it had to be accepted, uh, by all the Jewish people. Thus, we had one Torah for one people. Okay? Now, what happens? We need to understand that if you put two Jews in a room, you're going to have about four to five opinions. Now go ahead and put 23 rabbis in a room. You're going to have many opinions. So what is the process and how we decide what the rule is? Rabbi so-and-so says permissible. Rabbi so-and-so says not permissible. What do we do? The answer is simply from a verse. Achre rabim lahatois. After the majority, you shall turn. Now, seems to be simple, right? Not simple at all. There are two opinions on what this verse means. One opinion says, thank you. One opinion says that there is the opinion of the majority amount of judges. There is the opinion of the minority amount of judges. And we are to follow the opinion of the majority of judges. Simple, right? Comes along another opinion and says no. What it means is there's the opinion of the minority, there's the opinion of the majority. We now know which direction we're going to go. However, listen to this opinion. However, the court cannot give its verdict until the majority keeps on working and explaining and proving their opinion to the minority and thus at the end we will have a verdict based upon unanimous decision. By the way, all Chabad court, courthouses until this very day, based upon the opinion of the third Lubavitcher Rebbe known as the Tzemach Tzedek, follow the latter opinion. It's a much more tedious process, but that is the way it works. Okay, so now you know what it means after the majority you shall follow, according to the two opinions. Also, interesting to note, very interesting to note, today it is very difficult to be able to have a Jewish hearing. You will not, almost never, I would say never, but never good to say never. So I'm going to say almost never do you have the option of having a true Jewish court hearing. Why so? To understand this, we need to understand what the verse says. God tells us in the Torah that he severely, severely holds responsible the judges if there is any perversion of the absolute true Torah law, even if it's done so unintentionally. They really did the best they thought. They really thought that this is what the law is saying and they made a mistake. They are 
held severely responsible by God. Now, what does this mean? What this means is that a judge needs to be able to truly say that he combed through the entire Talmud, all the codifiers that lived within the last 900 years, and to say that based upon all this knowledge, I hereby say that the absolute true Torah verdict on this matter is such and such. That is, that is just enormous. So what do we have today? Most courthouses, and I will say again most, I would like to say all. However, most courthouses do something what they call this. They will not accept your case unless both parties are going to sign a document which states that we hereby accept arbitration in accordance to Jewish law. What does that mean? That means that the rabbis don't have the luxury to just decide, maybe we'll do this, let's work this out, let's make a compromise. No. They must follow Jewish law. And they're going to give a verdict. And that verdict is mandatory on both parties. So much so, by the way, parenthetically speaking, most Jewish courthouses today, before you even get into the situation, they will make you sign a document that also says that you hereby accept that this is the civil law and therefore the courts won't revisit it. They will actually make sure to enforce it. So this is incumbent upon both parties. However, what it does for the judges, the rabbis, it frees them from that huge, enormous responsibility before God. At this point, if you did arbitration, not saying that this is the Jewish court hearing, then doing the best you can without any intentional perversion is acceptable. So just that you should know that. There's one more, there's one more issue I'd like to discuss. I told you before we go on to the more spiritual aspect of the class. So I told you that Maimonides tells us that at the end of the day, everything made its way to the one and only verdict of the Jewish people in the Supreme Court. Any question which was not yet clearly defined made its way to the Supreme Court in the Holy Temple, and that's where it happened. So how is it that we today have so many different opinions, the laws, I'm not talking about customs and tradition. There is an argument on absolute laws between Ashkenazim, Sfardim, within the community of Ashkenazim. There's so many huge different amounts of opinions. How long do you wait after meat before you can eat milk? There's actually different laws. The same thing within the Sephardic community. It isn't just like we just think there's Ashkenazim, there's Sephardim. No, within Sephardim, there's so many different communities. And each one has their own law. How did that happen? How did the one Torah of the one people be no more one Torah over one people? 
So I want to share with you, Maimonides tells us the exact historical fact how this happened. So, once a year, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, which were the two greatest schools of Jewish law, Jewish Academy, Torah Academy, what happened? They would meet and they would follow the process. They would discuss everything that came up in the last year and they would then come to one decision which once again made it one Torah over one people. However, remember where I told you the verse of how you follow, how do you decide when there's an argument amongst the judges? Did you notice that that verse speaks nothing at all of the quality of the sage? It speaks only of the quantity of the sages. Now, we need to understand something very interesting. The philosophy of the house of Hillel was absolutely different than the philosophy of the house of Shammai. As you know, the house of Hillel was always very lenient. The house of Shammai was always very stringent. You all know the famous story, right? The person came to Shammai and said, if you teach me the entire Torah on one foot, I'll convert to Judaism. What Shammai did. Later, he went to the house of Hillel and he asked Hillel. The same thing, and what Hillel did. So they were very different philosophies. One of the major ways that these different philosophies express themselves is that when Hillel took over the academy, he opened up the doors to anyone who was willing to honestly and truthfully study Torah. Shammai was not so. Shammai had very strict standards before he let someone join the ranks of the house of Shammai. Now, that means in numbers, who had more students? Hillel. So what would happen when the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai would come together to decide? Being that the rule is after the majority, the law was always like Hillel. So Shammai at one point, the house of Shammai told the house of Hillel, we will not be meeting with you to finalize a decision on law unless you commit to only bring with you the sages of the house of Hillel, which in quality-wise, scholarship-wise, match our students, our sages. Hillel for a very, the house of Hillel for a very deep philosophical reason refused to comply to that. And thus the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai did not meet. On that day, our sages say, there became two Torahs amongst the one people of Israel. The communities of the house of Shammai followed the rulings of Shammai. The communities of the house of Hillel followed the rulings of Hillel. Now, that evolved into every single community, especially if you take consideration how the Jews were spread out amongst the diaspora and they did not have forms of communication. Thus you had every single community following the rulings of their individual sages. I want you to know that the Holy Talmud talks about that day where Shammai and Hillel refused to meet as just as the day of the destruction of the Holy Temple. That's how serious it was. 
You understand that from a legal point of view, the Holy Temple stood as the Supreme Court, which ruled that there will always be one Torah over one people because they always had one ruling. That was destroyed from a legal sense of view, from the legal arm, the sages, the judges, the courthouses, that was destroyed on that day when Hillel and Shammai would not meet. Okay? So now you understand the process of the commandment of judges. I want to say one more thing before I just briefly say a sentence about the officers. You know, the Zohar has a very beautiful insight to what seems to be the horrific crumbling of our people. And I want to quote what they say. Naharim Naharin is Pashtin, rivers and rivers branch out of one ocean. So understand that every single one of these different verdicts, Torah verdicts of any sage in any given community, the only source was the Holy Torah. Take it a step deeper. In return, each one of these rivers brought back its own wealth of flavor and minerals into the ocean. Thus you understand how the Zohar views that it was God and not man's strife that brought about this beautiful phenomena. Okay? Okay. Now let's get into the soul. We spoke about the laws. Oh, I just want to tell you, the officers basically, their job was only one job, to enforce the verdict of the sages. That means whatever the courthouse said, what happens if Chaim Yankel says, <laughs> I'm glad the rabbis think this, but I won't be doing this. In the times of the Jewish courthouses, that wasn't an option. Physical measures were taken. Okay? So that's the officer's job. Now, let's get into the Hasidut part of this, okay? And let's just understand. A body can only be in one place and at one time. The soul is the exact opposite. It defies, it transcends beyond the limitations of time and space. So too exactly it is with the Torah. The Zohar talks about Hasidus and the spirituality, the esoteric, as nishmasa de araisa, the soul of the Torah. The Talmud and the methodology of decodifying Jewish law is considered the body of the Torah. The body of the Torah, because of its specifications, exists only in a certain time and in a certain space. For example, my friends, all the laws concerning the services in the Holy Temple they don't apply. Physically, we can't do those things today. You're not allowed to do it. It's actually punishable by death if you do do it. However, on a spiritual level, the soul of the mitzvah is eternal. Every generation, in any geographical area, for each and every individual. So too it is with our commandment that we're discussing here tonight. When the Torah says, and you shall place judges and officers at all your gateways, there's a second half to that verse, which I didn't read until now. So let's read it. 
that the Lord your God is giving you for your tribes. That's a very, very detailed specification. What it just told us is that this commandment exists only in the biblical land of Israel and only when the majority of the Jewish people are living there. So from the body's perspective of this commandment, we can't do it today. However, from the soul aspect of this commandment, it's eternal. And we're going to discuss that tonight. Okay? So you understand the difference when we talk about the soul, it gets very personal. We talk about our city, our gateways. We talk about our judges. We talk about our personal. It's all personal. And that's what we're going to discuss here today. Okay. So, I want to tell you what this lecture is really all about. It is all about one detail that Napoleon Hill found in his decade of research of successful people for his book, Think and Grow Rich. You know that if you read the history, you read the book, you know that Napoleon Hill was challenged and commissioned by Dale Carnegie to put this book together. He spent a decade, a decade of researching successful people interviewing them getting under you know what's really going on here so i want to share with you what he says hill found that every single man who has ever found success was a man in love with a woman and hopefully she was his wife hill dedicated an entire chapter to this it is chapter xi 11 of his book feel free to go ahead and read it Tonight's lecture is understanding this universal fact as it is expressed in this commandment of placing judges and officers at our personal gateways. Okay? We're going to take a whole different approach and dimension to this. Okay. When I first learned this week's Mimer of the Rebbe, you know, every week, I did the Shabbat before, I start learning it, and then from there it cooks, it cooks, it cooks, it cooks, until we finally sit down, spend a couple of hours by the computer to actually lay out the class. But I will tell you something very interesting. The Rebbe delivered this Maimon in 1963. It was printed in this week's Dvar Malchut, a pamphlet that almost all over the world people are learning. So I always try to take that Mimer. I don't try. I always take that Mimer. And that's where I develop this, this tonight's class from every week. Okay? However, this time I was very challenged in transforming this Mimer of 1963 into a digestible lecture. The reason for this is the stern approach and details of how the Rebbe defines the personal process of placing the judges and the officers at the gateways. So I'm going to jump ahead of myself and I'm going to tell you how the Rebbe defines that in our personal relationship and service to God. Placing judges at the gateway, the Rebbe says, is a Talmudic ruling, a man should always incite his good inclination to fight against his evil inclination. Yargis, the word incite, actually means angry. How do you say angry? He's brogus, right? Huberogus. Now, and if that does not work, the mimer continues, then he must move on to placing officers at his gateways, which is the continuation of that very same Talmudic ruling in Tractic Brachot, let him remind himself of the day of death. 
I was just having a hard time stomaching that this is all that Hasidus has to offer on this commandment in a personal level of serving God. So, I went back and learned the Mimer again and again to find a new paradigm that the Rebbe is offering us in our personal relationship with God. What I found in the Mimer after learning it and learning it and trying to see what is the Rebbe doing. A Mimer is a revelation. It's a new paradigm. It's not just a repetition of a teaching or, or a detail. I will tell you that after learning it again and again and thinking about it, what I found was absolutely a new paradigm to rules of the Torah. And with it I found a very spiritual insight to Napoleon Hill's findings, which I spoke to you about. So let's get with it. The city, right? That's what it says. You have to place it at the gateways of the city. So here's an interesting fact. King Solomon in Kohelet. So I want to say that in English for me because I'm going to mess it up. Exili. How do you say Kohelet in English? Thank you very much for that. States, and I'm quoting to you two verses. There was, th that's in brackets, a small city with few people in it. And a great king came upon it and surrounded it and built over it great bulwarks. And there was found therein a poor wise man and he extricated the city through his wisdom. But no man remembered that poor man. You know that King Solomon speaks in metaphors in Kohelet. Okay? Upon this verse, there is a medrash, Kohelet Rabbah. And what does he say? Again, I will quote. City, this is the body. Few people in it are its limbs. And a great king came upon it is the evil inclination. And there was found therein a poor wise man is the good inclination. <laughs> Interesting concept. So before we even get into understanding why is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination is called the great king. The good inclination is called the poor, poor man, poor wise man, but poor man. So I'd like to explain that according to Hasidus. But before we do that, I want to stop and take a moment to appreciate why does the Rebbe start his mimer, his discourse on the law of placing guards, the judges and officers at the city. So the first thing we're understanding is what is this city? The city is us. We are the city. Now, the question is, who did this city belong to before the great king came upon it? King Solomon seems to start the story smack in the middle. He doesn't tell us what was going on in the city before the great king came upon it. So now we understand that the city, from what we're hearing here, the city is the city of God. It is the city which God molded from dust and then blew within its nostrils the spirit of life. This was not just an ownerless city and a king happened to come upon it and say, hey, no one owns it? All right, I'll do the job. We understand what's going on here now. This is a city. It's a beautiful city. And actually, there was a hostile takeover. The hostile takeover is this king. Who is this king? It is the evil inclination. 
And thus we understand that we're talking about before we even get into the personal mitzvah, the commandment of placing judges and officers at our personal city, the God, God's city, us. We understand what's really going on here. We were born to be God's city. God created us that way. And everything was okay until the great king, the evil inclination, just waged a war and had a hostile takeover. Then we hear that within the city, there was one poor wise man who freed the city from the great king, the evil inclination. Okay? Now, we need to deal with the question. Why is the evil inclination called the great king? The good inclination is called the poor man, the poor wise man, but poor man. Why? So, let's get into this. The Alter Rebbe, the founder of Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, in his book, the Tanya, he also talks about the war between the good inclination and the evil inclination over the city. He also uses that metaphor, the city. Only that the Alter Rebbe does something very different right after that. In discussing on how the war, how the battle is won, he introduces the arbitrator. Who is the arbitrator? The Almighty. God. The Holy One, blessed be He. Let me quote it to you so that we really get this clear. Okay? The Holy One, blessed be He, who comes to the aid of the good inclination, as our sages said. He now quotes the Talmud. Listen to this quote. If the Almighty did not help him, he could not overcome his evil inclination. My friends, how are we to understand this? So God created every person with an inner raging struggle, a war, between his good inclination and his evil inclination. God created it so that we could never win this struggle. We could never win this war. That's what the Talmud just said. Then God comes swooping down from the heavens, saves the day, and creates for us another happily after ever ending. What's going on here? How do we understand this Talmud? And then again, we need to understand the same question we asked before. Why is the Talmud telling us that if not for God swooping down from heaven to help our good inclination, the evil inclination would automatically win. So even the Talmud, we're not talking about just the, the metaphor of King Solomon. The Talmud accepts as a very simple ruling the Alter Rebbe in the practical guide of how to live the life of a Benoni accepts it as a ruling that we will never be able to win our Yetzirah. In brackets, I want to say this. Those in addiction recovery programs live with this phenomenon of having to fight a battle of which we are incapable of prevailing, only to know that it all depends upon God's time to offer us a spiritual enlightenment. Exactly what the Gemara says. Very interesting. So while some of us here are just sitting and, and hypothetically thinking about this, you understand that this is the living or dying of an addict fighting for recovery. Let's go further. The Alter Rebbe's great-great-grandson, 
Rab Sholem Dover of Lubavitch, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, he explains this concept. And I want to share with you how he explains it. Very interesting. To understand this, we need to first understand the soul has five levels. I'm going to give you the Hebrew names from top to bottom, lower to higher. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, Yechida. Of these five levels of the soul, the lower three, that means the first three, the first three are the linear and they permeate the body. However, the top two, Chaya Yechida, because they're circular and infinite, they cannot permeate the finite body, the finite mind, the finite heart, the finite faculties of the city. And thus, they encompass the city. What I just explained to you is the secret of what we call in Hasidus and Kabbalah the soul below and the soul above. The lower level of the soul, the linear finite part of the soul that permeates the body is the soul below. The encompassing two powers of the soul, the top two layers, the Chai Yechida, they are the infinite circular, they are called the soul above. Now follow me. Besides the Book of Kohelet and besides the Talmud, you should know that all over, we always call the Yetzahara the old foolish king. Melech Zaken Uksil. What do we call the godly soul? Narkatan, the small young child. Why? Because the soul below, the linear soul that lives within the city, is far weaker than the egocentric passion of the great king, the evil inclination. Thus we now understand what's going on here. When we talk about the soul as the soul that permeates my body, the one that fits into my brain, the one that fits into my heart, the one that's within my thoughts, speech, and actions, that is the linear finite layers of the soul. And thus, they cannot, they simply cannot, when egocentric passion hits the way only a tsunami knows how to hit, not your mind, not your heart, and not your obedience is going to protect you. You know, not in my notes, but I'm watching eyes over here like wondering, what? Do I agree with that? <laughs> well, if you don't agree with it, you just don't know what a real good Yetzirah is. But I want to share with you a very interesting concept. So this girl from Venezuela was studying in, in Mechon Chana. Today she's a Rebetzin in Manhattan. When she was first starting her Baal's Teshuvah movement, uh, her own personal journey, so she came across a rabbi who used to teach her, Rabbi Wahlberg, who's today in, uh, in, in Manchester, England. He teaches in the school there. A an unbelievable man. And Rabbi Wahlberg smokes cigarettes. I'm going to carry it away here. So she asked him, you're learning with us, Tanya, self-control, escafia, submitting your, your passion and your desires. Why do you smoke? 
Where's your escafia, Rabbi? <laughs> she told me that Rabbi Wahlberg gave the following answer. No one wins their Yetzirah. We just pray and thank God that the Yetzirahs that we have shouldn't be too bad. <laughs> that was the answer. Now, I, I'm not going to endorse that answer, nor does Rabbi Wahlberg even need my endorsement. The man's a giant of a man. But just appreciate it from the perspective of what I just quoted to you from the Talmud in Kedushin. If not for God swooping down to aid the linear, the lower levels that permeate into our being, we would never be able to overcome temptation, period. Now, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe of Shomber, of Lubavitch, explains what does the Talmud say when it says that the Holy One, blessed be He, swoops down and aids the good inclination. He says very simple. If the linear part of the soul, the finite linear part of the soul, is committed to working the judges and the officers at the gateways, then God connects the soul below to the soul above. The soul above is far greater than even the egocentric passion of the animalistic soul. And thus, victory takes place. I want to go back to my brackets. Okay? So too, it is for those in addiction recovery programs. As they work daily the 12 steps and are vigilant about the maintenance of their spiritual well-being, after which they experience their spiritual awakening and their obsession is miraculously lifted from them. Follow again the 5th Lubavitch Rebbe's interpretation of the Talmud. Soul below, do your work and the Almighty will connect you with the soul above and you will experience the miracle. However, the triumph and the victory is not a one-time victory. That's it. Spiritual awakening, we're all free. But you should know that the work of having judges and officers fighting the war of the gateways is a daily, daily battle. And so too it is with the addict in recovery. That spiritual awakening and having the obsession lifted is dependent upon the daily working of the steps and the vigilant maintenance of spiritual well-being. Now let's go back to what tonight's class is all about. You understand now a whole new dimension of what the city is and what the gateway is and what's going on here. Yes, King Solomon says, that the Yetzahara is the great king. The linear soul, the good inclination as we know it, is what? Is the linear soul, the finite soul. And in face of the egocentric passion, it's a poor man, a poor wise man, but a poor man who is fighting for freedom from the great king. And the only way to win this is by the battle, the war of the gateways. Because at the war of the gateways, that's where the Almighty, quoting the Talmud, 
The Almighty swoops down and helps. How does he help? He connects the soul below to the soul above. And once the soul above is in our being, our experience, then we're talking about victory. Victory over the great king. Freedom of the city to be what it truly is. Okay? Now let's start talking about the details of the mitzvah on a spiritual level. The gateways. What are the gateways of the city, right? That's what the verse says. And you shall place the judges and the officers at your gateways. What is the gateways from the Hasidic level? The gateways of the Hasidic level on its simple term, as explained also in Musr, there are four gateways which are really seven gateways. The four gateways are your eyes, your ears, your nose, and your mouth. That is how all information and senses are brought to our mind, our heart. Why is it seven? Very simple. You have two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, and one mouth. Okay? Those are the gateways that we have to place judges and officers by. However, tonight we're going to go a little deeper into Hasidus, and we're going to understand a different dimension of gateways. In the book of Proverbs, King Solomon has written for us, Mishli, King Solomon has written for us the most beautiful poem that we sing every single Friday night called The Woman of Valor. What does it say in that Woman of Valor? The verse says, Noda basha'arim bala. Her husband is known at the gateways. Talking gateways again. Okay? Now what do we know about this? We know that there are two, two interpretations to what the word gateways, the sha'arim, basha'arim mean in this verse. But before I tell you that, let me just tell you that there are so many different beautiful interpretations to the woman of valor. One of those interpretations is that God Almighty is the husband, capital H, and we, the Jewish people, are the wife. As you remember, the great teachings that when God lifted Mount Sinai full of flowers over our head, it was to serve as a beautiful chuppah on the day of our wedding. Right? So we have the husband and the wife. And now what are we saying here? That the husband God is known at the gateways of the city, his wife. Okay? Now, the word basha'arim in Hebrew can come from two roots. Either it can come from the word sha'ar, which is a gateway, or it can come from the word shi'ur, which is a limited measurement. What is the shi'ur of how much matzah you have to eat on Pesach? Right? You're familiar with that word. Now, of course, in the Rebbe's teachings, two meanings on one verse are really one concept. So what happens here? Every single Jew has his own individual gateway of how he knows and serves God. This is why in the great teachings, when the Jews left Egypt and they were going to Mount Sinai, there was a splitting of the Sea of Reeds. Contrary to how Universal Studios presents it, the sea did not split into one main open throughway. Rather, there was a different opening for each one of the tribes. Why? Because they were going to Mount Sinai and everyone has their own gateway of how to get to Mount Sinai, how to serve God, how to experience God, how to know God. Now let's take this to the 12, 
right? We have the tribes. Let's talk about this. Reuven. The word Reuven comes from what word? Seeing. Re'e. So Reuven's shar, his gateway, his personal form of which to serve God and experience God is through seeing God in everything. On a higher dimension, this is called the faculty of wisdom. Shimon, the next son, the next tribe. Shimon comes to the word Shema, to hear. His personal gateway of serving God, of experiencing God, is what? Is about hearing the breath of God within everything. On a higher, deeper level, this is called the faculty of understanding. The same goes on for each tribe. Levi is the gateway of connection and commitment. Judah, Yehuda, is the gateway of gratitude and humility, etc. So what we're learning here is that every person is a city to God. And this city to God, each one, each city has its own specific gateways. And thus, because everyone has a different gateway, there's a different capacity and limit to each one in how they serve and experience God. Thus you have the two understanding, you have the Sha'ar and the Shi'ur. Okay? Okay. Now we need to go a little bit deeper. What do we just say? We said that the husband, God, is known at the gateways. Right? We explain gateways as each person having their own personal gateway of how he or she serves and experiences God, which comes with its own finite capacity. Okay? Now, I want to tell you that not only is the husband, i.e. God, known at the gateway, but is known through the gateway. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is the service of the gateway. What is the service of the gateway? What we're talking about tonight. To place judges and officers at your gateway. That is the service of gateway. That is what tonight's title is. The war at the gateways. Now, what does that mean? To understand what that means, we're going to now need to understand what does it mean the placement of judges and officers at our personal gateways right who is the judges who is the officers and what does it mean we place them at the gateway so before i explain this i want to just go back for a moment to my own personal struggle with the sternness of the interpretation and my own personal distaste for rules in general Let's talk about this for a moment. According to everything we heard, the verse of our Parsha, the verse of Kohelet, the verse of Woman of Valor, we now understand that the city is, quote, home of love. When I say quote, I'm not quoting someone. I just want to emphasize this. The city is the home of love.
This is where the husband and the wife, God and us, well, in our, in our story here, live together. It's where they love each other. It's where the husband is known to the wife. It's where the wife feels protected by the husband. So we now understand. Remember I told you before, before the great king came along, what was this? It was a beautiful home of love. Isn't every home a home of love before some problems happen, temptations, slips? That's what this is. It's the home of love. However, follow everything we discussed tonight. What level of the wife can live in the home? The lower, linear, finite experience of the wife's being. Which we also now know the word sha'ar, gateway, also means shi'ur, limit, capacity. So you understand that the level of which the husband is known to the wife is of lower vibration frequency. It that, by the way, this notion of lower frequency of vibrations is known in the world of Kabbalah and Hasidis as what? As lower knowledge, dat tachton, and lower unity, yichud, tata'a. Because that's all the lower levels of the soul are capable of experiencing. So while it is a beautiful home of love, but the love is stuck within the lower vibration frequencies of the soul. More specifically, the soul below, which is the only part of the soul, we said, which lives in the house. Correct? Now that we understand that, we understand that the battle of the war of, I'm saying word, battle, war, <laughs> the war of the gateways. What does the war of the gateways do for us? What the war of the gateways do for us is that they help us break through from the lower frequency to the higher frequency. Because when everything is smooth sailing and you're not crushed, you don't produce essence oil. So what I'm telling you is that the true experience of the soul above is experienced only at the war of the gateways. Because the lower soul, the soul below, does give us one thing. It gives us the fortitude and the yearning to fight to save our home of love. However, remember what the Talmud said. What did the Talmud and Kedushan say? That you can have the fortitude and yearning from today to doomsday. At the end of the day, the linear soul does not have a chance against the egocentric passion of the great king. And thus, what are we saying here? What we're saying here is that the home of love, as it was before the great king came along, had zero Zero power to stand up against, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew the house down. 
However, what happens when the soul below is forced to fight the battle, the war of the gateways? What then happens? So here we need to understand. Sometimes direct love is not enough to awaken within us the power it takes to save our home of love. Rather, what we need to do is experience indirect love. What is indirect love, my friends? Indirect love is the fear of losing your love. Now we're experiencing a whole different experience of self. Suddenly, the city of love is not just something, the home of love is not just something we're committed to, not just something that we would like to have, but rather we're willing to put up the biggest war unto death do us part from this home of love. So what happens here? Now understand what's going on here. The experience of the officers, the judges and the officers, is the left experience. You guys know your Kabbalah. Right is what? Love, kindness. What is the left? Strength, right? Rules. What happens here? What happens here is that the war of the gateways awakens within the person what? Let's quote what the Rebbe said. He quoted the Talmud from Barachot. That we should incite. It's the experience of anger. No, I'm not just laying down my arms and walking away from this. This is something I do not want to lose. So what happens then? We awaken the anger within us to incite the good inclination to stand up, rise up, connect with the soul above and fight the evil inclination. And what happens if this doesn't work? So the Talmud in Brachot goes on to the next step. If your judges have failed you, shift now into step two, which is what? This is the officers. This is the absolute fear of remembering, reminding yourself the day of death. And therefore the struggle, the struggle, the war of the gateways is where we rip down of just being sufficient, happy, okay with the lower vibrations of the soul below. This isn't easy for a person to go mad. There's a reason why we use the word crazy in love. Do you know that the Rebbe used that word? The Rebbe told a news reporter, they say about me that I am crazy about Mashiach. What does that word crazy mean? Crazy to the linear is circular. If you tell me that you're willing to invest X amount, but then you're going to back off, that's not crazy. But if you're willing to go all out, you're crazy over something. What the war at the gateways does for us, it makes us crazy about our home of love that we have with God. 
And then what happens is we're ripping open the paradigm, the lower vibrations of the linear soul in our city to make room, to unite, to be permeated by the higher vibrations of the soul above, of the higher knowledge and the higher unity. And thus you understand why the husband is only truly known at the gateways through the war of the gateways and yes that is what rules are really all about rules are not here to infringe upon or subdue or to choke the expression of self rather what real rules really do is they focus and they intensify your expression of self, namely to make sure that love is only expressed in the four walls of your home of love. Because when we don't focus that, we don't intensify it. And then you're not really experiencing what it means that your husband, capital H, your husband is known at your gateways. There never is that true fusion of oneness that comes only from higher vibrations. Whew. In closing, the entire book, Think and Grow Rich, is about connecting with our higher intelligence. You guys read Napoleon Hill's book. Why, in why connecting with the higher intelligence? Because he's saying that that is the only place where true creativity is created and nurtured. That's where it happens. This can only exist within the home of love where the war of gateways are fought driving us from our soul below vibrations to our soul above vibrations. This is where success happens. Thus you understand that what, what Napoleon Hill picked up on, that every successful man is seriously in love with a woman. Look what our Parsha is telling us. Because when you're seriously in love you're then willing to fight the war of gateways. By fighting the war of gateways, you're now, what are you doing? You're actually elevating yourself from the lower vibrations of the soul below, which I quote, is a poor wise man, to experiencing and becoming the higher vibrations of the soul above which is far stronger and far greater than the old foolish king. That's where egocentric passion is subdued. Greater than that, that's where it's transformed. So, for the Jews, this also exists in our city of God, our inner home of love, where we place judges and officers to wage the war of the gateways. Thank you very much.